Welcome to the Capital Beach Podcast, part of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm the Executive Director of American Shore and Beach Preservation Association, and I'm your host for the Capital Beach, coming to you from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Uh, on today's show, we are going to be hearing from one of the most important and influential people making decisions about uh, the American shoreline, General Todd Semonite. However, unlike many of our episodes, we do personal interviews. Today's episode is going to be a vignette uh, compilation. So we had the pleasure of hearing from General Semonite at the recent ASBPA National Coastal Summit. And so we're taking his keynote address and, and breaking it apart and digging into it a little bit. And we'll also be talking a little bit more about some of the other issues going on with the Corps from some of the other speakers uh, from the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, should be a good episode. It's a bit new for us. I haven't done a non-interview uh, podcast before, so we'll see how this goes, and if it works, it's largely thanks to the technical wizardry of the folks at ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. But before we go any further, I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Thank you very much to Dune Doctors, who continues to be a sponsor of the American Shoreline Podcast Network and all of our shows, dunedoctors.com out of Pensacola, Florida. Y'all know her, Frederic Barrasset and her team, excellent folks, professionals on shoreline restoration and management. And welcoming a new uh, partner, Peter, we've got Coastal Engineering Consultants. Yep. Uh, where are they out of in Florida? Help me out here. They're out of Naples. That's right. They're out of Naples. And our good friend, Michael Poff, heads up this organization, yep. a sterling coastal engineering firm, and we are thrilled to have them uh, join the ASPN yeah. sponsor family. You can learn more about uh, Coastal Engineering Consultants and uh, Michael Poff's work at CoastalEngineering.com. What a good, what a good website name that is. <laughs> That's right. The other sponsor we have, uh, led uh, by our good friend Bill Worsham in the Coastal Engineering Division of LJA Engineering, with 28 offices in Texas and on the Gulf of Mexico. Another very fine coastal engineering firm. They do good work. Find them at lja.com. I wanted to add my personal note of thanks to each of our sponsors on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Dune Doctors, LJA Engineering, TI Coastal, and Coastal Engineering Consultants. Uh, over the past couple of years, I've gotten to, gotten to know some of the folks associated with each of these uh, industry groups, um, these companies, and they're all really good people. Um, they do really good work, and so thank you for sponsoring the podcast network, and we hope uh, to see some of them at upcoming ASBPA events. Okay, let's dive into the podcast. We recently completed our National Coastal Summit at ASBPA, and if you were there, it was great to see you. I hope you felt like you learned a lot. I hope you had a chance to meet with some of the decision makers in Washington, D.C. And, and share your story. Uh, if you didn't have a chance to be in D.C. for this event, we certainly hope you can come next year. And we hope this will give you a little taste of what happened and give you a chance to learn a little bit about what we learned about during this, during this summit. What we're really going to dive into today is the keynote address from Lieutenant General Todd Semonite, who is the Chief of Engineers. The Chief of Engineers is the uh, military commander who oversees the entire Army Corps of Engineers, both the civil work side and the military side. And those of us that work on coastal, I think often forget that the military side almost dwarfs the civil work side. In part of his opening remarks, General Semonite talked a bit about 
what he oversees as the chief of engineers. And the art civil work side on a typical year is about a $6 billion budget, so nothing to sneeze at, uh, certainly. But the military side can be upwards of 18 to $20 billion a year. So that has to do with everything from building building barracks and, and working on facilities in the United States, as well as some of the overseas mission that the, that the Army Corps of Engineers has. But really, mostly what we focus on on the coastline are the civil work side. And so that's what we're going to talk a bit about. I'm going to mostly play some clips that he was from where the general was talking about the civil work side. Just to sort of tee this up, I wanted to bring up the the effort that he has, that the, the general has been pushing to really revolutionize the Corps. I think it was an interesting speech and in that I have never heard a senior commander at the Army Corps talk more about how the Corps' role is fundamentally changing. And that's not to say that um, they don't do great work already. Uh, they really do. Um, many beaches, many levee systems in the United States are, are built and maintained by the Army Corps of Engineers. But there's also historically been a lot of frustration with the Corps, and I think the senior commander understands that and wants to address that. And we'll hear a little bit about that in some of these clips. So, uh, and then of course, after, after the clips, we will talk a little bit about, or, or hear from some of the other folks at the Corps who presented at our summit around regional planning. And unfortunately, I didn't get any, any audio recordings of some of the folks talking about permitting and regulatory review, but I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that too, because I thought that was really interesting. So let's, let's just dive in. Uh, I want to play our first clip here, and this is the general talking about risk tolerance at the Corps and the need to expand risk tolerance so we're not, the Corps is not sort of a risk intolerant organization, and then also talking about sort of expanding the, the idea of what counts as a benefit, so including social, social impacts as benefits and sort of teeing up what we'll hear a little bit more later around natural and nature-based features. And the other big thing we're doing in the core right now is where can we take some degree of risk? And I'll talk a little bit about risk when it comes to staffing and to be able to execute, but what's the right amount of risk that you could take? And unfortunately, I see some projects that our guys design and they get to the point where they're so risk adverse and they're so expensive they might never see the light of day. So I'm telling guys now, Give us something that we're able to get across the start line with appropriations and we can at least get something going. And that might be something we can talk about later. But it's one thing to say that a project is authorized and it is a good engineer solution. It's something else and I worry about when we do a project and it never gets appropriated, that somewhere the, the people out there feel that, hey, I got my project authorized but there's never any money to it. We owe it, I think, to be able to give a good enough solution that can get across the start line when it comes to respective appropriations. So let's go to the next one. So this is a little graphic on the bottom, if you can't see it. It kind of lays out in the, uh, in the upper right. There's a lot of structural members, uh, structural different measures that we could take on these coastlines. A lot of non-structural. Some of our big projects, uh, you know, we're going into where it's buyouts, raising houses, how do you do zoning things? What do you do when it comes to non-structural? A lot of programmatic measures, and a lot of those are local and state uh, issues that you put into. And I think the thing that we're really looking at more now is this native and native-based features. Uh, how do we continue to integrate those back in? And the right solution is probably a little bit of all of this, okay? It's not one silver bullet. It's how do we take all these different dimensions, put them together, to come up with a portfolio of techniques and procedures and construction that can basically be able to make sure that we come up with a, an overall plan 
plan is doing the right thing. And I think uh, uh, Amy and, uh, and, and our guys are going to go into a couple of these in more detail. So as you could probably gather, the general was uh, doing a PowerPoint presentation. He, he referenced some of the slides that he was uh, discussing. However, I think some of his points are pretty well made without the slides. And certainly uh, for those of you on the podcast, if, if you were sitting in the back of the room, you probably had difficulty seeing the slides anyway. So, so it's really not that different from, from that. A couple interesting points there. I think there was a little slip of the tongue when he said native and native-based features. I think that was intended to be natural and uh, nature-based features. However, certainly if the Corps is interested in using native plants, I think that is something that almost everyone in the conservation community would support, helping our pollinators and birds and, and native wildlife. So maybe natural and nature-based features can shift to native and native-based features. But yeah, some really good, good thoughts there on allowing the Corps to take a bit more risk. My background working with the Corps, the first thing that I, I was engaged with was working on coastal Louisiana and, and certainly the LCA projects, the Louisiana Coastal Areas, uh, projects that were authorized really have never been have been funded, and some of the the reasons I think is just they they became too expensive. They weren't they weren't easily uh, workable for the local community. So glad to hear the the core is now starting to think about what is the end game. We're not just going to put together this perfect plan that can't be implemented because it's going to cost a you know a million billion dollars. So uh, that's a really, really good thing. Also, uh, looking into the natural nature-based features, we, had a, we heard from the general pretty significantly about engineering with nature. Um, I'll, I'll turn it back over to the general to fill that out. Okay, so let's talk real quick about the next one. So this is an initiative that, that my guys have been working on, and we actually started this in, in 2010. It's called Engineering with Nature. I'm just gonna hit a couple bullets. You'll see a couple on the slide. But it really goes back, it combines natural processes with engineering to produce water infrastructure projects that result in a more economic, environmental, and social benefit. And then we basically collaborate throughout uh, several different agencies here, state, federal, NGOs, private sector, academic institutions, uh, some examples, NOAA, Fish and Wildlife, Nature Conservancy, Caterpillar, Texas A&M. And it really goes back, I think, to this idea that we've all got to come together and understand everybody's equities. No one gets a, a big vote on this. How do we make sure that we're trying to pull together to be able to get this done? I'm going to show you a couple innovative tools here. Go to the next one, Dustin, real quick. So this is the Philadelphia district. There's actually three districts that we've kind of picked. We call them the proving grounds of a lot of the EWN initiatives. Galveston, Buffalo, and Philly. And uh, this particular one, I'm gonna walk you around a little bit here. Uh, top right, that's a picture of uh, Stone Harbor. Included the placement of dredged sediment from a navigation channel using a thin layer placement technology to create a black skimmer habitat. Uh, this project was a collaboration between Philly, State of New Jersey, and the Nature Conservancy. Here's why this is important. It's important to the habitat to do this. It's important to the wetlands to do this. But I got another whole different problem, and that's called navigation. Somewhere we're gonna nav, we gotta dredge this out. We got a massive navigation requirement, and we have not figured out how to stop these harbors from silting in. So every single year, what we're seeing is it's harder and harder to get rid of a lot of that dredge material. So if you go to Baltimore, I think Baltimore is limited on uh, you know eight or nine more years on how many more places we can put it. Hundred years ago, we bought sides both of these rivers, and we had dredge material management areas. So we'd go in and put the dredge material in, it dry up, we haul it back out, and then we continue to be able to dredge. But those are running out, and so at some point we have to find more innovative ways of taking care of clean dredge material. I'm talking clean, but it's not clean. 
we're going to do it the right way and uh, continue to uh, remediate it. Uh, there are areas where we're allowed to do ocean uh, dumping, but we think that there's other ways. This goes back to us looking at sediment as a resource. How do we somehow use that sediment to take care of some of these advantages? I'll walk you through some other ones. But that stone harbor up at the top, at the bottom, that's the same place where basically we're using, we're broadcasting a thin layer placement technology at Avalon project site to be able to do both of those things. Do dredging and to be able to take care of the navigation requirements, but also be able to take care of the wetlands. And then bottom left, Morakai Island. Uh, this is where we had about 28,000 cubic yards of material beneficially placed to fill an erosional cut. Uh, if you ever been to Poplar Island? I love Poplar Island. It's a place that we built basically uh, dredge material, and now the habitat is crazy out there. There's all kinds of uh, uh, things, that, and, you know, all kinds of different birds come in. There's uh, all kind of wildlife out there. But how can we somehow take something that we have the capability to be able to uh, build a facility like that, and then it takes care of that dredge requirement while at the same time taking care of uh, uh, the habitat? Let's go to the next one. Here's Galveston. Um, on the bottom, uh, on the bottom left, this, this is a little bit of uh, some R&D initiatives we're doing to try to investigate the strategic placement of sediment in close proximity to either a mudflat or a marsh. So then, as this comes in, the wave action continues to wash that sediment into those wetlands or into that marsh to be able to continue to take care of it and maintain the, the long-term uh, natural um, accretion process. And then the top right and the bottom pictures, this also looks a little bit about, uh, this is the Tex Texas Coastal Protection, where we're trying to go back and uh, include, we got scientists, engineers, and landscape architects all exploring ways to incorporate natural infrastructure into projects, which will support ecological and social benefits, uh, increase beneficial use of dredge material. So just a lot of capabilities that we're trying to figure out how to do a better job. Just to go to the next one. This goes back to collaboration again. These are a lot of the different icons that we're working together when we come to natural and nature-based features. Right now, we're actually working this internationally with six different countries and 30 different organizations to be able to come together. They've established what they call a guidelines document, which informs other practitioners uh, about how to be able to develop and implement these kind of features. Uh, so I, I think it's where we've got to figure out, think out of the box, whatever we did 50 or 100 years ago is not the right way to do things. It's not just gray. How do we continue to be able to put all of these different tools together in the right application to be able to take care of uh, both Mother Nature, be able to take care of disaster response, and, and the other requirements out there. Man, I love that section of his talk. If you are a lover of the core, a hater of the core, or really anything in between, I think you got to be impressed by what uh, General Semonite was saying there. Really, he nailed some of the major buzzwords that, that those of us in the coastal conservation community are looking for. Hearing the general talk about sediment as a resource, I mean, that's a mantra that we have been talking about for a long time. We can't just waste sediment. We can't just dump it offshore. And hearing the general talk passionately about the need to rethink how we are using sediment, to me, was a tremendous success and a tremendous show of leadership that the Corps needs to rethink some of their, their basic practices. Some uh, specific stuff, The hearing the general talk about thin layer placement of dredge material, this is some of the new innovative technology that we don't even really know how to do perfectly yet, but the core is actually trying to do that. That to me is, is terrific. We're not just talking about beneficially using beach quality sand. We're looking at fines and, and, and smaller particle efforts to restore marshes. And as I think you mentioned, black skimmer habitats. 
Uh, he mentioned natural infrastructure, another sort of, and, and again brought up natural and nature-based features. This really was the heart of of what ASBPA has been working on for the past couple of years and many of our uh, organizational partners. I also was really excited that he mentioned the international uh, guidelines document. And so this is an effort that the Corps is, is working on to try to set sort of standards for natural infrastructure and, and natural and nature-based features that'll be used both here in the US but around the world too, so that we can, there can be some engineering guidelines that, uh, that, that meet strict engineering criteria when you're not using steel and concrete, but when you're actually using sediment and plants. So really, uh, really exciting stuff from the general. Uh, sort of his, his final point of, that he discussed was the change in mentality of the Corps and talking about how, we, how the Corps revolutionizes itself or how, how to revolutionize the Corps. I'll let the general talk a bit more about that. This idea revolutionized, okay? So um, in the Army, uh, when the new uh, Secretary Mattis came in a couple of years ago, he said, I'm going to do three things. I'm going to modernize DOD, I'm going to basically have better readiness in DOD, and I'm going to reform DOD. Reform was his number three. Then Secretary of the Army came in and said, I'm going to do readiness, I'm going to do modernization, and I'm going to reform the Department of Army. And so for a couple of years, we've been doing things like campaign plan. We've done a lot of things to try to streamline delivery. But at some point about a year ago, I said, you know, I got frustrated. I'm not sure we're being aggressive enough of changing the culture in the Corps of Engineers. Went home, talked to my wife, and I said, I guess I gotta, I gotta reform the Corps. She goes, that kind of sounds kind of negative, doesn't it? And I said, you know, I grew up in a small town in Vermont. Five miles down the street, there was a reform school. The smart kids did go to the reform school, okay? They went to the, sent the Dutch to the reform school. I said, I'm not gonna do that. And whether you agree with me or not, I think that we're running a, you know, a world-class professional organization. There's a lot of things we, get, we could continue to fix. But I am not going to put the stigma of reform on the Corps of Engineers. I'm going to do something bolder. I'm going to go to revolutionize. So listen to these words. There's a definition up there. Involving or causing complete change, sweeping, pioneering, original, profound, far-reaching, innovative. And we went back through and said everything is on the table. Not just civil works, civil works, mill missions contracting, my lawyers, my HR system, how do we do our IT system? And we basically broke everything that's holding the Corps of Engineers back into two systems. What are those things that are below the line, things that I can control? A good example in civil works, we've delegated probably 40 or 50 more decisions down to the next lower level. When you think about what we're doing in revolutionizing, um, we've got about 180 different actions in civil works alone to speed up civil works. It goes back to this idea, of I suggested. It goes back to the idea that somewhere, we've got to be able to take a long-term plan. Upper left is our campaign plan. Lower right is what our guys on the ground told us, our area and resident engineers. The people with the muddiest boots in the Corps of Engineers said, boy, it takes a long time to get things done. So you think about contracting, what can we do better to partner, change order process? What are we doing to be able to somehow expedite? Studies is a good example, okay? Corps of Engineers studies used to take a long, long time. Now we're being very aggressive and getting them in done in three years with $3 million. We want to try to continue to beat that. So everywhere where there's a frustration out there, I want to try to figure out if it's something we control, which I would call below the line, we want to expedite it. And if it's something that I need help in, we're going to go back in and we're going to ask Congress to be able to say, here's where you can help us. I think right now, clear the one that I'll show you the next one here. Okay, so just on civil works alone, 
Here's the three big areas we're trying to revolutionize and so work. Accelerate project delivery, 81 different actions. How do we somehow streamline? How do we power down? How do we make sure that we're getting a, a faster turn on contracts? How can we hold people more accountable? There's even a thing where you grade contractors. If you don't know, it's called CPARs. We could never grade subcontractors. So we might have had a great crime, but we didn't have a sub. So we've got to propose legislation to say, let us grade the subcontractors so we know if we have a bad sub, we don't use them again. And that's still working its way through rulemaking right now. But it goes back to where we as the core, um, and I would almost say one of the leaders in construction in the federal government, have to be able to let Congress know where there's some places they can untie my hands. And I'll tell you, I haven't yet a congressman man or a congresswoman yet who haven't said, General, where can we help you out? And this is a good message to you where there's things that you're frustrated at and my guys are telling you, hey, we got our hands tied, the rules don't allow that to happen. Then let us come back and lay that out. And you can do certain things in back rooms that I can't do, but I want to be able to help shape how we can make the Corps of Engineers a more relevant place. When you think about project financing and budgeting, uh, we've got, I think, uh, 14 different, different initiatives. P3s. We had a P3 that was all ready to go. I probably briefed you on it two years ago. It's got caught up in the congressional budgeting and scoring, okay? So we can't get private investment into civil works projects because we can't figure out how to do the rules at a higher level. WIFIA. WIFIA is a thing like TIFIA. DOT has a transportation grant. Does the Corps have to do all of the oversight? Or is there ever a time I can come to a local community and say, hey, we were able to secure the money. Here's a check. Go build it yourself. You can do it probably cheaper and faster than we can. Those are some of the initiatives we're trying to do to try to make it. I'm not saying we're ever going to make a, this run exactly like a business, but maybe a little bit more of a business ethic and a little bit more of a business mentality to figure out how can we be more responsive and to be, uh, I think, uh, much more streamlined as we go down through that. The goal is speed and efficiency to make it happen. Again, another great section by the general. Hardly needs any analysis or explanation there. Sweeping, profound. Everything is on the table. Some really great words in there from the general about how to change the core culture, both what he's able to do, how you can change the culture, but also looking at what Congress needs to do to allow the, the core to, to change and become a, an entity for the 21st century. Let's just wrap up. I'll let the, the general get a final word in here and we'll, we'll pivot to some other issues. Uh, I, I think I would just end by saying I'm trying to emerge after these next two, two or three years with this unprecedented growth with a core of engineers that is leaner, that is more responsive. Maybe there's some things we shed and we've really got to be able to make sure we're being innovative by saying, um, are we listening to all the people and what they're saying and is there a way we can be a little bit better? It goes back to, I think, this theme. The theme today, projects are going to come and go. We're always going to have projects. You're always going to have storms. You have all this kind of stuff. But I go back and tell my guys, it's not building concrete and steel. The most important thing we should build in the Corps of Engineers is relationships. And that relationship's got to be built on trust. It's got to be built on collaboration. It's got to be us looking you in the eye, Derek, and saying yes or no, and here's why, and here's where you can help us. And then we as a team cross the start line together, and we're all going to get to the finish line on top. I thought that was just a fantastic speech by General Seminite. It really hit a lot of the points that ASBPA is looking for, and I think a lot of our, our audience here on the Capitol Beach is looking for. What is the Corps doing to transform itself to be an effective uh, organization, effective agency in protecting our coastline in the 21st century in an era of rising seas, in an era of increasing, increasing coastal development, 
and when the cost of doing business continues to get higher. And that really does look at how does it, the core evolve as a culture? How do we revolutionize the core? How do we engineer with nature? The concept of we're not looking at either gray structures or green structures, they have to be both. We have to figure out how we can put in wetlands with uh, levee systems, how we can create beaches and dune systems to provide flood protection. Maybe some of those need embedded seawalls, maybe some don't, but how can we actually uh, use both the green and the gray to provide community protection? And how can we do that while allowing for a certain amount more risk? We're never going to have full flood protection. We need to have flood risk management, and that means allowing projects to move forward that you know, maybe aren't 100% guaranteed to work, but, you know, 99% is a lot better than not doing the project at all. So uh, really hit on some good key points. So from there, I felt bad for our follow-up speakers. We immediately transitioned at the summit uh, to a panel hearing about regional coastal studies. And so we're just going to take some quick clips from each of those. There are three major studies, uh, regional studies, that the Corps is somewhere in the process of. So the first is the North Atlantic Coast Study, which was authored, uh, authorized and funded after Hurricane Sandy. And so that is looking at how to improve the coastal resilience in the North Atlantic region, so from, from Norfolk up to Maine. That has largely been completed. There are still some specific areas that are being worked on. And then we'll hear a little bit about the South Atlantic Coast Study, and that's the entire South Atlantic coast region, so not just the South Atlantic coast. So it actually goes from North Carolina down the Atlantic coast and then up the Gulf Coast into Mississippi and also is looking at the two Caribbean territories, Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, that one has been authorized. It was recently funded in the disaster supplemental following the 2017 hurricanes, Harvey, Irma, and Maria. Uh, and so we'll hear from a little bit about that. And then the third one that we're looking at is the Great Lakes Coastal Resilience Study. This is a little bit different. It was not started or, or the idea didn't come from the Corps itself. It largely came from the states in collaboration with local districts. And so we'll hear uh, a little bit about that too. Um, we're not going to dig into this too much. These are probably each of these are worth their own podcast. Certainly combining all three is tough. But it is, a, it is an area where the Corps is starting to look at regional responses to flood risk management and to ecosystem restoration. So really looking at these as, as system-wide efforts, not project-by-project project specific, um, specific work. So let's kick it off. Uh, Amy Geis with the Baltimore, the Chief of Planning at the Baltimore District of the Corps will uh, give a quick uh, clip of her talking a little bit about the North Atlantic Coast study. A lot of money, a little time, and 31,000 miles of shoreline, as you can see in this graphic. That was the area uh, that we analyzed. So we had to think about what did we want to do in that time frame and with that money, uh, which, is, which was a great uh, thing for a planner to get out of an emergency supplemental bill, which is usually focused on recovery. So we decided we did not want a report that would sit on a shelf. We wanted to develop a framework uh, for decision making, decision making that could be replicated and consistent throughout other communities. We just didn't want this to be a one and done. We wanted to put the funding into new tools. We wanted this to help others reduce risk, not just the core of engineers. And we wanted to close the data gaps that we knew were out there. 
certainly wanted our stakeholders involved and we wanted to integrate them. We know that the Corps of Engineers does a lot of great work, but we're not the only ones on this landscape. We're not the only ones in the business. And so we wanted to make sure that there, if there was a good tool by someone else, we were using it. We wanted to make the best uh, case for science moving forward. So of course, all of that together, the framework that's consistent and repeatable, not only in this region, but can be uh, done in other areas, new tools and the stakeholders would lead us to more um, robust risk-informed decisions, but ultimately we wanted to get to implementation, right? Our report, which I have here, is 100 pages. Everything else went into the tools and the data sets because we wanted to spearhead implementation, not only for the core, but by others. As Amy points out, the North Atlantic Coast study really was the uh, impetus or, or provided many of the tools for the, North, the South Atlantic Coast study and uh, hopefully for the Great Lakes Resilience Study. Let's immediately turn to a good friend of ASBPA, Jackie Kaiser, who's out of the Jacksonville district. She is she has a couple different roles. Uh, she's the supplemental program manager for the Jacksonville district, so she's helping oversee some of the funds that are going to, to that part of the country following the 2017 hurricanes. And she's also the uh, director of the Regional Center of Expertise for Regional Sediment Management. So clearly, uh, looking at both beaches, coast, and regional sediment management, a, a big friend of ASBPA. Uh, let's hear from her about the South Atlantic Coast Study. So the bottom line up front, and the great news for the National Coastal Program, is that SACS, when combined with NACS, will provide a consistent regional picture of coastal risks on the East Coast. And when combined with other regional studies like the Texas Coastal and the Great Lakes, it brings us to a consistent national picture of coastal risk. This act was authorized by Congress in uh, WERDA 2016. The authorizing language provides the framework for our study scope. And I've underlined here what jumps out as different from NACS. Um, one, it includes an emphasis on regional sediment management principles. Two, it specifically calls out vulnerable environmental resources. The NACS law did not include that. Um, and then the guidance sub subsequent to the law uh, confirmed that uh, NACS would not, I mean, excuse me, SACS would not authorize any new projects and it would not complete NEPA. However, it should be noted that one of SAD's major focuses on SACS is to make SACS actionable in both the short term and the long term. There's multiple SACS products and stakeholder collaboration that's going to inform current and planned USACE actions that can be implemented under existing authorities. Obviously, there's much less to report on with the South Atlantic Coast study, given that it really was only funded and only began this past fall. But there has been some effort to create a vision, uh, a unified vision statement for the South Atlantic Coast study. If you're interested in learning more, ASBPA has information on our website. Just go to ASBPA.org, and if it's not linked from our homepage, just search South Atlantic Coast study, and you can find out a bit more about what's been going on there. Finally, let's turn to the Great Lakes. We're going to pivot to someone actually not from the Corps. So we've had a bunch of Corps speakers, but we're going to hear from Scudder Mackey, who is the uh, director of the Coastal Program for the state of Ohio. Many of you probably know, but might not 
some might not, that uh, each state has a coastal manager or a, a manager for their coastal program, including the Great Lakes. So Ohio has been doing really good work on regional sediment management, on managing its coastline, and has come together with a bunch of the other states, as well as the Chicago, Detroit, and Buffalo districts of the Corps to propose a Great Lakes Coastal Resilience Study. So let's hear from Scudder about what's going on there. What I want to talk to you about is the uh, Great Lakes Coastal Resiliency Study. Um, many of you folks don't, are not from the Great Lakes, you're not familiar with the Great Lakes, and we certainly have a somewhat different system. Um, and also I want you to know that this study is not ongoing now, it is not a completed study. We are in the scoping phase, uh, we're seeking funding for the study, uh, and I do want to highlight a number of the differences between, I think, some of the other um, uh, regional planning projects that were just discussed and the work that we're doing here. So, first of all, um, this is a collaborative project between eight of the Great Lakes states and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, NOAA, and the United States Geological Survey. The states are partners in the project. It's a 75-25% cost share. The states are contributing in-kind match in terms of data and services as part of the project. And the real advantage here for the states is, is that we can ensure that our state priorities in each of the eight Great Lakes states has a unique set of issues and problems that we can get those issues addressed as part of the study. We don't have sea level rise, and I'm going to emphasize this in the Great Lakes. If we have sea level rise issues in the Great Lakes, we're in a world of hurt. <laughs> okay. uh, but we do have a, a significant variation in uh, Great Lakes water levels uh, over different time scales. That's very important. We are seeing substantial changes in precipitation events, in severe storms, the frequency and magnitude of storms, and the pattern of storms, uh, much more severe. Uh, right now, water levels are nearing record highs in virtually all the Great Lakes, so and with respect to erosion, that's going to be a major issue for us. Uh, obviously, coastal storms uh, is associated with these large-scale uh, precipitation events. We also have other types of uh, factors that affect resiliency. Um, a significant portion of the Great Lakes watershed is agricultural. We're looking at significant nutrient levels. We have harmful algal blooms. We have water quality problems. This directly affects the quality of our beaches and our shorelines. So these are things that are part of our resiliency package as well. Uh, we have invasive species. Um, you've heard of Asian carp, uh, but we also have zebra mussels, quagga mussels, we have sea lamprey, and they have all impacted the system as well. And then also we have a lot of aging infrastructure in the Great Lakes. Uh, a lot of our ports were constructed 100, 120 years ago. And um, one of the things that I don't show here, but I will talk about just for a second, is that one of the things that we have that many marine coasts don't have, and that's ice. Lots of ice. And many of you may have seen the recent little news article about the ice tsunami on the eastern shore of Lake Erie, where we have strong winds out of the southwest, the sesh. Uh, water levels go up very quickly, a lot of ice, and it was literally a wall of broken ice that was moving up on land and actually went through homes. And that's the thing that you don't get down in the South Atlantic. So an ice tsunami sounds to me like something the Night King would summon to accompany the army of the dead in Game of Thrones, but apparently it's a real thing in uh, in the Great Lakes region. So uh, really important for the Great Lakes to have a coastal resilience study of its own. Really interesting presentation comparing the three 
coastal resilience studies that the Corps is working on. I think there's a lot of similarities, although obviously distinct differences. The Great Lakes don't have sea level rise, they have lake levels. And the South Atlantic and North Atlantic have very, uh, well, both deal with hurricanes. One has more of a northeaster, uh, nor'easter issues. The other one deals with far more tropical cyclones. So really interesting. I think the big missing one is the Pacific coast. Obviously, they're not looking at hurricanes and storms in the same way, but they have El Nino effects. So I would love to see the Corps pick up a, a Pacific coast study that maybe brings in Hawaii too. They have uh, hurricane issues and, and uh, tropical cyclones there. So um, interesting to see if that picks up in the next couple years. The final issue I want to bring up with the Army Corps that was addressed at the National Coastal Summit is the issue of regulatory reform. Um, we had a panel uh, called How One Federal Decision is Working, and we had Richard Darden, who's the program manager for uh, regulatory at Army Corps headquarters. We also uh, were very pleased to have Alex Hergott, who is the executive director of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council, which is the new council that's been set up in the past year that looks at some of the large, very large infrastructure projects and is working to make sure all agencies are coming together to permit uh, large infrastructure projects in a timely fashion, making sure that you know if you're a $200 million plus project, you can get your permits done in two years. Um, and then finally, we had Eddie Carter, who's with uh, GEC, uh, an engineering and environmental sciences firm that is responsible for doing the permitting for the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion, which is a, a coastal restoration project um, and is really the largest coastal restoration project in the country, or at least by, um, by size, and is one of the only coastal restoration projects that is included in one of these FAST 41 projects that the, the Federal Permitting uh, Improvement Steering Council is looking at. There's really way too much uh, to get into detail on this. I just wanted to highlight it because I think it is another area where the Corps is looking to revolutionize. Um, the Corps sort of de facto has the lead on a number of regulatory issues because they are the ones doing the projects or, or uh, permitting the project. So they need to make sure that their core projects are getting uh, permits and, and regulatory review from Fish and Wildlife Service for Endangered Species Issues, EPA on clean water issues, um, National Marine Fisheries on, on sort of fisheries and marine mammal issues, as well as uh, a number of their own permits that they, they oversee. And so this was a discussion about the one federal decision process, which is to say for, lar for these large projects, all the agencies need to come together, need to commit to a certain timeline for how quickly they're going to do these, um, to do these permitting and regulatory review processes, and and really be in throughout and be in this this permitting process throughout. I think it's a, an interesting concept and an interesting idea. My concern is that some of the smaller projects that don't quite fit this major infrastructure initiative are actually having staff taken away from their review process because it's being moved towards these big projects. So if you have a beach project that's, you know, by our scale is not, not small, you know, a 15, 20, 30 million dollar project, are the people who would be doing your reviews being moved towards a half a billion dollar roadworks project? It's unclear how that's, that's playing out. Also, the, the time and effort that is going into uh, making these reviews happen quicker is taking a lot of personnel time. And, we haven't seen uh, the administration's budget support that kind of increased effort. So it takes funding to do regulatory review. And if we're going to be 
making sure that that review happens quicker, it's going to take more staff, and we haven't seen the budget reflect that. So really good idea. Um, I'm pleased to see some of it working, but I think there's some, there's some problems there that we need to address. So maybe we'll do that on another Capital Beach podcast, but just another aspect of the way the Corps is at least trying to think a bit differently about how it operates and how they're trying to uh, try something new in terms of moving regulatory processes faster. And, and to give the Corps some credit, they're helping take the lead in this effort and bring some of the other regulatory agencies along. So with that, I think we're going to wrap up uh, today's show. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a, our coastal summit was three jam-packed days of information and opportunities to meet with uh, Hill staff, with agency staff, hear from some of the best federal decision makers uh, on coastal issues in Washington, D.C. Um, I had a fantastic time. I, I get really energized by uh, both the speakers, you know, the folks that are that are in D.C. doing this work, but really more so from the folks that, that come into town, people uh, like yourselves, maybe, who came in, who take the time to, uh, to come to D.C. to talk about your issues and to make sure that you are fully aware of what's going on in terms of federal coastal policy. So, if you, again, if you came in, thank you so much. It was great to see you. It was great to have you here. If you didn't, I hope this helped. I hope you found this informative. Again, we do this every March, so please come in again next year. Uh, we'd love to see you, love to learn from you. And uh, as always, thank you for listening to the American Shoreline Podcast Network. If this podcast does work out, if, if you've gotten to the end of this and you found it inspiring, it's largely because of the magic of Tyler Buckingham splicing and dicing and making sure all these clips come together. So big thank you to Tyler. And of course, Peter Ravella and American Shoreline Podcast Network. Those guys are great. Uh, again, big thank you to our sponsors, Dune Doctors, LJA Engineering, TI Coastal, Coastal Engineering Consultants. And I'm going to sign off. Uh, again, Derek Rockbank with ASBPA signing off on the Capitol Beach from Washington, D.C. Thanks all. Bye.